0: old book. A book about witchcraft. You're listening to the Whitewood Podcast, a show about mystery schools, the occult, and witchcraft. Would you like to have a look around? Why have you come to Whitewood? Well, because I'm interested in witchcraft. I'm your host Nate. Come with us as we delve into the history, techniques, and backstories of these traditions and the people who practice them. Welcome back to the Whitewood Podcast. My name is Nate Driscoll, and this week we are picking up from a little bit of an extended break. Um, Usually, I try to make sure that these episodes are much more frequent, and there were a couple of different factors that played into this episode taking a little bit longer than usual. Uh, Usually, when an episode takes a long time, it's because of research, you know, it's because we're diving into maybe some of the deeper side that maybe I wasn't as aware of and I wanted to expand on or maybe you know I had most of the information, but we wanted to make sure that it was it was properly fleshed out. In this case, that wasn't actually the case. I found myself incredibly busy and uh, dealing with a lot of different occult projects um, over a couple of different states. It was uh, you know a really fun experience, but it did take up a lot of my time. I spent some time in Denver working with, one of the orders that I'm a part of, and then I spent some time in Sacramento working with another uh, order that I'm, that I'm a part of. And so it's been, uh, it's been a little bit of uh, over here and then over there. And then in my local area, I took on some new roles, which have um, still being a part of one of those occult orders, um, took on some new roles that required me to spend some time doing some research and, uh, preparing for that role, uh, as it relates to that local body. So it's been, uh, it's been a really great time. You know, I've been doing very, very well as far as the types of things that I want to be doing. And, um, unfortunately it just became a little bit of a time constraint and that held me back in a way. And so I'm really happy to be back. I'm happy to be putting out more episodes and, uh, right off the bat, we're going to finish off an episode that um, was pending for a while. You know, we had all the research and everything thrown together. We had all the information. Uh, We had already done the LBRP 1 and LBRP 2. This is going to finish out that with LBRP 3 and kind of dive into the last bit of the ritual. Uh, and then we also have a couple where, um, you know, there are some recorded episodes that have not been released and those will be re- uh, released really soon. I wanted to make sure, um, that we finished out the section of LBRP episodes before we jumped into a new episode. Um, so I didn't want to do LBRP one and two, and then bring on a guest speaker and then do three cause, or, you know, a couple guest speakers or whatever, uh, because I felt like that might, um make it harder for others as they dig through these episodes to keep all the information kind of tied together. Uh, and so, uh, I've, I've got a couple episodes that we're sitting on that have already been edited and they're ready to be produced. Um, some of that had to do with some of the traveling. So, uh, we used the opportunity. We ended up traveling, not for the podcast. We were doing, or I was doing some, uh, stuff for different orders that I'm a part of different initiated, uh, initiation orders, uh, different mystery schools. Um, but as long as we were going to be out of town, surrounded by a whole bunch of occultists, we, we always want to take those opportunities to talk to people about their perspectives and um, you know hear straight from the horse's mouth as opposed to my interpretation of their ideas. I do think that it's really important that this podcast, if it's going to showcase these kind of topics that it does so in a way that um, is respectful towards the fact that there are going to be people who have a different perspective and try to bring them on and let them showcase that different perspective. And so that's kind of what ended up happening is as long as we were surrounded by a lot of people, we uh, took seized the opportunity to do that. And um, there's more coming uh, that are these types of projects. I'm really trying to slip this episode in between some more of those, uh, traveling situations where we're going to be heading out to, uh, the Portland area. And hopefully while we're out there, we can get a couple of people, uh, to do, uh, some episodes. If not, you know, it might just turn into my own personal work, but this is all really exciting for me, you know, because I have, uh, I've always been a seeker of these types of things, and it's not like these things haven't always been available to me. It's not like I haven't been, but a lot of times I either, um, you know, I knew knew the people, I knew where to go to go off and, and do certain types of workings and learn from certain types of people. Um, but I was, uh, restricted whether that was like financially restricted or time restricted or, you know, cause traveling is expensive and it, and you, it takes time away from work and those types of things. So, uh, I'm really excited because I'm entering a stage of my life where, uh, I never really thought I was going to get here. You know, it, it, uh, it was a long road, but I, I am now at least for the time being in a brief window where I am able to both, uh, with time and with money to be able to do a little bit of traveling. And so, um, right now, what I'm trying to do with that opportunity is really seize it and really, uh, try to get the most out of it because, uh, I don't know that this is going to last forever. Um, I imagine that, you know, as life has in the past had its ups and downs, then I have another one of those coming, you know, another up and another down. And so I would imagine that, uh, it's really important as long as I have this opportunity to just seize the day and go and uh, get what I can get done. And, um, I'm also in a really interesting place, uh, currently where, um, uh, my relationship, uh, my family has been, um, supportive of that, you know, and, and, uh, That can be one of the other barriers sometimes to being able to go do some of the things that uh, you really want to do that you really feel would be a benefit is to kind of go out and um, you know it can be hard on a on a partner on a spouse on on kids on family members even sometimes just on friends it can be hard on them to not be as close by Um, and so the timing kind of lined up with a. A couple of other things where, you know, in my more personal life, it was it was time to go out, get these types of tasks done and uh, still very much dedicated to the great work, you know, still very much dedicated towards my own magical progression. But in a way, uh, it was just it was it was going to be it was going to be the right moment for it. So I decided to to kind of focus on that for a little bit. And so that took a couple months you know and uh even though i say that uh that's that it's over uh i mean there's another one coming next month and uh i'm sure there's more after that (laughs) it's been a wild ride um so we did we we seized the opportunity with some of those to get some new faces in front of a microphone talk to them about it and uh pick their brain Um, one of these particular episodes, I'm really excited to release because this is one of the people that, um, I've really, really connected with in a, in, in a very short period that I've known them. And it's been really awesome to, you know, be able to sit down for an hour and, uh, you know, get to know each other a little bit better, a little bit deeper, talk to each other about, you know, uh, some of our spiritual progression and what that has been like. Um, so look forward to that episode. I think it's going to be awesome, and uh, there's some other episodes that are that are brewing as well. Um, so let's dive into it then. Lesser banishing ritual, of the pentagram. This is part three. Part one, we went over uh, some of the opener. Um, why you um, say things like Ata, Malkuth, Vigabura, Vigadula, what all that kind of stuff is. I think most of episode two, if I remember correctly, off the top of my head, was the pentagrams, drawing the pentagrams, where those pentagrams go around the circle, why they go in those positions around the circle, why you move one direction versus another direction around the circle, those kinds of questions. Now, um, I do want to say that... uh, with all of this stuff, and I'm sure I've probably already said it, especially doing an LBRP episode, uh, it's important to leave the door open for yourself to experiment with these things. Um, don't feel like it has to be exactly word for word the same way that everyone else is doing it. You know, um, If something doesn't make sense to you, experiment with it a little bit and say, hey, well, um, I don't understand why I'm doing these elements in these corners, so I'm going to try doing them in different quarters. Or hey uh, spelling uh, hashem versus saying Hashem um, hashem being the tetragrammaton the word um, you know which which way should I go with that and uh, you know maybe you, the person that's instructing you or the book that you're reading might encourage you to do it one way it's okay to experiment with doing it another way. Um, one of the very early things that I did um, very early on experimenting with lBRP was uh, they always say invoke first thing in the morning banish last thing at night and I was like well I don't know why I don't like why would I do that you know like what's what happens if I don't and uh, a lot of times especially with a, with ceremonial magic people get in their head like oh this is all super dangerous and if you do it wrong one single time then the whole world explodes and everything is chaos and badness and and i haven't found that to be the case i've found that uh things will get disharmonized a little bit and it will be a noticeable effect but that that noticing that effect actually kind of helps you to understand why you're doing it in some specific way and then when you start doing it the way that you know that it's usually done that it kind of brings it back into harmony and so there's no harm no foul and now you understand a little bit more about how this all operates and uh i think a lot of it is just um I don't know. I think a lot of it comes back to, like, technology and the way that um, that we interact with technology. Like, if somebody says, only put oil in your car and only this type of oil, and then you go out and pour bleach in your engine, like, you're going to have a really serious problem. It's going to break the car. It's going to break down. You might crash. You might get hurt while you crash. I mean, like, it's going to cause a serious issue. Whereas with magic, I have found that it is more gentle uh, you'll definitely find a disharmony, but that disharmony is something that's manageable and, and identifiable and that that can actually be part of the learning process. Um, and, and a lot of times, uh, more often than not, the system is a, fa- a failed closed system. It, it, when, it, when something is done wrong, nothing happens. Not bad things happen, you know. If you do do something like totally backwards and you do manage to pull off the ritual... Uh, more often than not, uh, it just creates some disharmony that you can write very quickly and easily. Uh, but if it's along more along the lines of like you failed, this thing was done incorrectly. Uh, usually, it just nothing happens, and that's your key and your clue that like oh, it's done this other way because if you do it this way, it doesn't work. You know, it's usually a failed closed system. Um, so. From those kind of personal experiences, I would encourage people mess around with it, especially when we come down to the things like the pentagrams and drawing the circle and which direction you go, because uh, some of it's kind of confusing and there are, some of it's even counterintuitive. You know, some of it's like, well, why would I do it this way when there's so clearly an easier way to do it and it's right here and it's and it's just simple. Well, go ahead, try to simplify it, work with it for a little while. You might get some effects. Write them down. See what that's like. Now try it the, the regular way. What was the difference? And so I encourage people to experiment with it. Uh, having said that, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to receive a lot of hate from a lot of people that don't practice a lot of ceremonial magic. Um, culturally, there is a little bit more of a different attitude towards um, like ceremonial magic in general. Than there is towards like uh, witchcraft or uh, paganism. Uh, Some of those types uh, will have like a you never do this rules. And um, those are generally perceived to be for the personal protection of the individual, right? Uh, Whereas in ceremonial magic, we're much more about documentation and the scientific method applied towards these things. You know, we want to, I want to write a journal every single day that tells me exactly. Uh, what's going on, uh, which planets were in the sky, which rituals I did that day, uh, and try to track it over the course of six months. And I don't want to cross-reference my own experience with somebody else's magical journal. I want to see like, oh, this, that's interesting. The same thing happened to both of us while we were, uh, it created the same type of disharmony when we were both doing it this other wrong way. (laughs) But, uh, you know, like, like let's say both me and my friend, uh, Independent of each other, decided to try drawing the pentagrams the other direction or something like that. You know, um, it's interesting to look at somebody else's work and see how similar the effects really end up becoming. Kind of blows my mind. And and ceremonial magic is is geared towards that. You know, we steer into those kinds of things. Uh, so culturally, we might have a little bit of uh, I don't know disagreement sometimes with uh, communities that. Have like hard dogma, dogmatic rules of never do this; it will harm you. Um, I'm going to catch a lot of hate for that statement that I made. Uh, I'm sure I'll receive at least a couple of emails, as <laughs> uh, a couple more emails, as people tell me. Um, you know, you're a terrible person. You should never tell anyone to do that. Um, I've I've caught some hate online for it too. It's happened a couple of times. All right, nice sip of my tea and let's go. Um, we just finished off drawing the pentagrams in the circle. We explained why, what postures, gave you some citations. This one is going to be the section that I like to call calling the archangels. Now calling the archangels um, immediately leads into a section that I call the proclamation. Uh, you could call it the declaration. You could you could lump it into the same category if you really wanted to. This is my own interpretation of how I break this ritual down in my head, and and I'm going to point out in this episode some of why I do that. Um, and it it to me it makes a lot of sense. By no means is it, uh, is it law, you know. Um, so uh, you don't have to break it down this way, but I am going to define calling the archangels as only the lines in the ritual that specifically reference the archangels. And then immediately after that, there are two more lines that are lumped into the same section. Um, so it says in the script, extending the arms in the form of a cross. Uh, this 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 uh, stance, extending the arms in the form of a cross, is one of the great signs. Um, I think it's a great sign. It's it's one of the signs that was uh, done by the Golden Dawn quite a bit in their work. Uh, sign of Osiris slain, um, and uh, I'm sure a lot of people have heard and might not know where this comes from. Um, a lot of people have have made a claim, uh, especially in the occult community, that the story of Jesus Christ is the story of Horus. Um, the mythologies overlap a little bit. And uh, a lot of people don't know the history behind where that claim is coming from. You know, like this is... Um, this is a really—I wouldn't say that it necessarily comes directly from them, because I don't think we've ever, we've ever—at uh, least I've never seen—you know—the first paper that someone wrote down and said, "Hey, by the way, I just realized this is the same thing as this." Uh, but, but as far as like culturally where that comes from, it's very much influenced by the Golden Dawn. Um, I think it's interesting because. You know, a lot of people that don't know what the Golden Dawn is parrot that exact phrase, and so clearly the influence of the Golden Dawn is much greater culturally than we uh, give them credit for. Because we'll give them credit in uh, in ceremonial magic, but not in pop culture, and that's definitely more of a, a wide cultural statement than I hear from people that don't even practice magic all the time. Um, <laughs> but uh, here in this in this particular. Uh, case it says the line extending the arms in the form of a cross and say, and if you look into some golden dawn work, that is the the sign of Osiris slain. It's a specific posture towards the reference uh, of a little bit of that overlap between the crucifixion and um, between the story of Osiris being slain by uh, his 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 brother Seth. Seth is. Uh, It's easy to make a misalignment between him and Satan. He's he's not necessarily the bad guy. He's an Egyptian god. He plays the bad guy role in some myths. A lot of statements have been made over the years that he's the same character. I think that it. I think some of that is because academia is uh, culturally influenced. By their current culture, which is a Christian upbringing, and so they instead of saying Satan is a Set-like character, they say Set is a Satan-like character, um, and and the difference is pretty pretty important to draw a line. I think, um, but Osiris gets slain by Set, rises as the uh, Horus child, the Horus. Uh, Daughter or son of um, Isis, so there's a there's a mythology there that is, you know, kind of being alluded to in some of these stances where you stand in certain positions, and then of course the Golden Dawn, having written this ritual, uh, they did have a little bit more Christian influence than I think a lot of ceremonial magic has today, and so there probably is a reference here, uh, at least in part, towards the uh, Christian crucifixion. Um, regardless. It depends on how you want to interpret what types of symbols you're going to cue into in your head. And I, and I definitely think that the signs, the, the stances, which you put your body in, um, that they are powerful in their own right. And, uh, the way that they tie into other ones and the way that they tie into all these vast symbols and how those symbols kind of overlap with, you know, like, um, you know, letters of the Hebrew alphabet. And, um, Certain mythologies from all over the world, and those types of things uh, add a lot of, a lot of potency to them. And so, I, if you are in a situation which is similar to mine, where you are not a, a Christian, um, I don't think that you have to take a Christian interpretation on this particular stance in order to get something out of it. And I don't think that we have to tear down people who do take more Christian approach in order for us to get something out of it. And so, I think that it's it's just it's just part of the ritual. We just work through it and try to uh, incorporate and encapsulate that that symbol in whatever way is most healthy for our own spiritual development and psychology. Um, so. I've said my spiel there. <laughs> it's a longer spiel than I thought I was going to have for one single line, extending the arms and the four of the cross, say. And then they say, before me, Raphael, behind me, Gabriel, on my right hand, Michael, on my left hand, Uriel. Sometimes pronounced Aurel. Um, Michael, sometimes pronounced Mikael or Um uh, Gabriel, sometimes Gavriel or Gabriel, Raphael, um... Of course, the Ninja Turtle. Um. (laughs) No, Raphael, uh, not the Ninja Turtle, the Archangel. Um. (laughs) Okay, so what is that section? Well, this is the section I like to call Calling the Archangels. And where does this actually come from? Because this is way older than LBRP. And it's a very interesting connection into some of this uh, Judeo-Christian... Um, in this case, it's, it's very much uh, uh, Ju- Judaism. Um, where does this come from? So uh, that particular concept of doing the, on my right hand, on my left hand before me, behind me, using specifically Michael, Gabriel, uh, Uriel, and Raphael uh, comes from a, an old bedtime prayer from the Jewish community. Um, it's a traditional prayer usually done three times in a row before bedtime, Uh, called the Bedtime Shema. And it was first written down, as far as I'm aware of, ever first documented in what was called the Standard Prayer Book in 1915. It also shows up in some later publications, of course. But in order for it to show up in the book that was the Standard Prayer Book, which was an attempt by a Jewish man to go through all of his culture and try to document as many of the different traditions as were going on currently in his time period, He was kind of trying to, you know, document his, his culture. And in order for it to show up in 1915, it had to have been passed down word of mouth frequently enough that, uh, it was worth noting in this book. And so, uh, it probably goes back hundreds of years. Uh, I would, I would assume, um, before the book was even written. Um, we don't know. We know that it was first documented in that in the standard prayer book in 1915, but we don't actually know what its origins were. Um, in Hebrew, in butchered Hebrew, <laughs> in butchered Hebrew, it says Bashem Hashem Elo Israel Miminim Michael Imoli, imi Imismoli." That's it. smoli Gavriel Imifani Uriel. Imehorai Raphael va Shit Roshi l okay like I said in butchered Hebrew that's it in its original tongue translated it says in the name of God okay so we've talked in episode two in uh in LBRP part two we talked a little bit about Hashem The word Hashem literally translates to the name. And uh, we talked about what the name is. And we talked about, um, you know, the Tetragrammaton and and the uh, sanctity of the Tetragrammaton coming from the practice of not speaking it and from avoiding it while reading it and that kind of thing. Um, So we know from that episode what the word Hashem means. So this starts off, Bashem Hashem, which means in the name of God. Uh, And then it says the God of Israel, which is the part where it says Aloha Yisrael. Uh, And then from that point, it is both the calling of the archangels and the proclamation from LBRP. Now it's a little bit rearranged because we're changing which position some of them are at in order to better align with ceremonial magic. But it's pretty close. Uh, So it says... May Michael be at my right hand, Gabriel at my left, Uriel before me, Raphael behind me. And then this last line is going to be really, really important as we're diving into the proclamation. It's not as important for the calling of the archangels section. It says, and above my head, the presence of God. What they would do is they would say this three times over and over and over again before bed. It's kind of like one of those like, um, like children's prayers where you might like instruct a child like, now I lay my head to sleep and blah, blah, blah. I don't know the whole rhyme, but it's like the nursery rhyme style prayers that you might teach a child. And he would say three times and then he'd go to bed and uh, similar concept. Now, um, B'Shem HaShem Is well ingrained into Jewish culture to the point that um, there are like nursery rhymes. You know how like a lot of religions have like their little nursery rhymes and stuff, and they might like record those for kids. And there might be like artists that are like recording artists for that particular branch of music. Uh, But Shem Hashem is totally one of them, you know, similar to how I might have like a little CD that has like row, row, row your boat, jump me down the stream for my kids as they're growing up. You know, somebody uh, from this particular tradition might. Might have one that says this. Now, I when I do this presentation in front of people, and it's like a like a free presentation, so I'm not bringing in any uh, revenue. Not that I'm bringing in revenue from the podcast, but when I do that, um, a lot of times here, I'll I'll play a little clip for people to be able to hear what that sounds like. Now, because of copyright and broadcasting over the internet, we want to point you towards it if you want to find it yourself. I can't play it over the episode. Uh, It's it's longer than a what is it a three second clip Uh, and so I might run into issues being um, being a podcast that's on all these major platforms. Um, But this one particular example, uh, Benny Friedman, um, is one of those types of nursery rhyme Jewish tradition uh, music artists. He has a album called Dawn of Mosaic. And uh, on there, there's a recording called Bashem Hashem, which is uh, great to listen to if you're going to do LBRP because uh, the pronunciation of the archangels is, is in there. And that pronunciation, I think, helps a little bit to kind of tune it into place. But of course, uh, it is I don't think that it's necessary. And uh, so if, if that was something that you're just kind of interested in, like some of the culture behind it, or you're looking for like more formalized pronunciations... I think it's a fantastic source. Uh, And it also kind of ties together what I'm talking about here. But um, let's move on because we're doing the podcast today so we don't have the ability to play that. So who are these archangels? There are four of them that were listed here both in Bushem Hashem and in LBRP. Who are they? Well, uh, archangels themselves um, go back quite a long time. Um, Rabbi Simon Ben-Lakish of Tiberius in 250-ish A.D. uh, Claims that the archangels' names, well, the angels' names, not just the archangels' names, that all the angels' names are brought from Babylon, um, that they are not of Jewish origin, that they are older, that they were um, brought in from another culture, an older culture. Um, There are no mentions to archangels that exist in Jewish text. So as far as there being like a title in angels, the title archangel, as opposed to, you know, like there's angels, but the concept of archangels isn't really in there um, as far as I have been able to find and as far as I understand. Um, The New Testament only mentions the word archangel twice. And only once does it actually tell you which archangel it's talking about. So as far as like, biblical and scripture sources. There's not a whole lot there. There's a little bit, you know. Uh, New Testament mentions archangels two, two times, and one time it says what its name is, uh, and that is in Jude nine. So Jude nine reads, Yet Michael the archangel... When contending with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses, does not bring against him a railing accusation, but said, the Lord rebuke thee. This is really interesting because the only time that an archangel is ever referenced is the archangel banishing. <laughs> it's it's kind of funny that we're talking about. I think that's more coincidence than anything else. Um, but I think it's really funny that that's the conversation we're having today. And that's the only reference of a specific archangel's name uh, is... You know, the archangels just being like, the Lord rebuke thee, these, I banish thee, you know. Um, yeah, Jude 1-9, if you ever want to look at their reference. Uh, Catholic canon has three named archangels. As I'm sure a lot of people are aware, Catholic canon is a little bit expanded from just the scripture. They have uh, some other teachings that have been passed down. Um, and in their c- Catholic canon, they have three archangels which are officially named. Those official named ones are Gabriel, Michael, and Raphael. Uriel is sometimes added as non-canon by St. Ambrose. Uh, but other than St. Ambrose, the, the, the Catholic canon is, is those three, uh, Gabriel, Michael, and Raphael. Now, uh, Orthodox uh, and Orthodoxy uh, has seven archangels, of which there are four that are in LBRP, so all four that are in LBRP, and then three additional ones. The additional ones are CTL, Jujdiel, Berachel, and Berheel. Jerachiel, I'm sorry. Um, So those are the the seven in Orthodox religion. Islam has four. Um, As we know, Islam is uh, one of the the, um, Abrahamic faiths, and they have four archangels. Uh, they replace Uriel with Azrael, though. So they have Gabriel, Michael, Raphael, and Azrael. Azrael is the angel of death, If for anybody who is... Um, that's the official name of the angel of death. Okay. So then, if there's these archangels, <laughs> and we got a whole bunch of canon names from a whole bunch of different religions... Uh, which religion and tradition inspired the author? Because I, th- I think that's a really, really important thing to look at here. Well, first off, of course, as we have already looked, um, there's Basham Hashem, which has these particular four that are listed. That's part of it. Um, as we know, we're making the uh, educated guess. I'm not going to say assumption. I'm going to say educate. We're making the educated guess that... The Lesser Banishing Ritual of Pentagram was written by um, Samuel Mathers or one of his contemporaries. Um, Mathers' wife was Polish-Jewish, so he definitely had influence within the household uh, that would have, um, you know, given him access to some of the Jewish traditions. Um, I would go farther and say that, you know, he was quite the academic when it came to spiritual concepts. Um, did some translation, did some very deep study in in some of the oldest libraries in the world. I would not be surprised if, you know, he came across Bushem Hashem through one of those other sources. Um, But what about his actual background? His actual... Well, Mathers went to a Protestant-Anglican boarding school called the Bedford School when he was young, and that particular boarding school followed the tradition of Church of England. The Church of England is of course, Anglican. Uh, The Anglican archangels are Raphael, Michael, Gabriel, and Uriel. And so it would make sense to me that if he was raised in a community that listed off these four as the four, and then later came across Bashem HaShem and saw those four, that it would be an easy uh, connection for him to make. Oh, hey, look, here's these four archangels. I'll use these four within the ritual and preserve it. Um, now, the of course, the, the words of Bashem Hashem, uh, are, they're not exactly a layout towards uh, LBRP. In LBRP, you would stand towards the east and you'd say, before me, Raphael. Whereas uh, Bashem Hashem, I don't know that they actually pray to a specific direction. I'm unaware specifically with Bashim Hashem if they do. I think that they don't. Uh, so they would face whichever direction they're facing and they say, before me, uh, would be Uriel, before me. They also kind of speak it in a different order. They say, at my right hand and my left hand, before me, behind me. We say, before me, behind me, at my right hand and my left hand. Um, so a little bit of difference. And then different angels associated with those different quarters. Okay, so who are the archangels? Who are these these specific four? Let's break them down. Give you a little bit of an idea of what each one of these is. Um, first off, Raphael. I'm going to go, I think I go in order. Let me look at my notes really quick. No, I don't go in order. Okay. These are not going to be in order that they're done in the ritual, but here's a breakdown of the four. As if I didn't just look at my notes (laughs) and tell you that I did it. All right, Raphael, pronounced Riffael. With these pronunciations, I'm going to present uh, pronunciations that are less, um, less Latin English type pronunciations, and I'm going to stick more with the Hebrew pronunciations. Uh, which are a little older. And there's a reason why. And uh, it has to do with breaking down what words are contained within their names. Because their names are actually uh, a couple of words smashed together. <laughs> and that gives us some clues as to the angel's personality, why we might associate it with one particular energy, and those types of things. So Raphael, pronounced uh literally translates to healing, which is of God. Now the word L, of course, I'm sure we've all heard Elohim. Um, L El is singular. Elohim is plural. Uh, same word. Um, and then uh, healing, which is of. So all of them are of L, Right? So that's why they say all the, I don't know if you noticed, all the angels' names end in El. Of L, Right? El. Uh, so Raphael stems from the word rifua or rapa and, uh, meaning healing. So healing, which is of God. Um, Raphael is not named in the Bible. He, he is Catholic canon and it's Catholic canon that he is the unnamed angel in five, uh, in John five, one, uh, through f- five, four. Um, he is, however, specifically named by name in Jewish canon, where he is in the book of Tobias. Uh, so it's uh, Tobit 1215 uh, gives the tale of, actually, it's it's more than just 1215, but he's specifically named in 1215. Um, so that story of Tobias, to recount it a little bit, uh, the angel... Uh, disguises himself as one called Azria, and accompanies Tobias, who is the son of a blind and righteous man named Tobit. On an adventure, they go to retrieve some money from a distant repository. And along the way, Tobias, the son of Tobit, catches a fish. And Raphael, who is right now disguised as Asria, uh, tells Tobias, you should cut out, uh, you know, gut the fish, but save the heart, liver, and gallbladder. And a little bit later, along their adventure, Tobias, while carrying around fish guts, I got to say, that's not a great way to pick up uh, ladies that you're interested in, is just having a pocket full of, you know, fish guts. But uh, in biblical stories, sometimes it makes sense. (laughs) Um, So Tobias meets a girl named Sarah, and Sarah and Tobias fall in love. Um, The problem is, is that Sarah has been has had some previous suitors and all of them have died before the marriage was ever consummated. Um, basically, she keeps falling for somebody and now she's worried, you know, like, oh no, Tobias is going to die and I love him and I want to marry him. But every time I do this, somebody ends up dead. Um, so at this point, I, I can't remember if she says or if Raphael says. One of, either either Sarah or Raphael say this is because of this demon is that I'm being haunted by this demon is Modius. I think that it's Sarah that says it if I remember correctly. Um, So Raphael continues ahead to go get the money and uh, Tobias stays behind and is instructed on how to repel the demon by burning the fish heart and the liver. So remember he saved... The heart, the liver, and the gallbladder. Tobias is instructed to burn the fish heart and the liver, and this will keep the demon Asmodeus away. Um, by the time Raphael comes back with the money, Tobias and Sarah are well into the 14th day of their wedding feast. And when the feast is concluded, um, you know, victorious now, and now married, Tobias and Sarah, along with Raphael, head home. And once they get there, Tobias heals his father's eyes by means of the fish gall. Uh, I can't remember if he rubs it in or he like turns it into something, but he uses the leftover fish part um, at the instruction of Raphael to uh, heal his father's eyes. So his father is no longer blind. And at this point, Raphael's like, hey bro, you know how I said my name was Azria and we've been really good friends for all of this time. Turns out I'm an angel. My name is Raphael and I'm the angel that carries man's prayers up to God. God sent me so that I could heal both Tobit uh, of his blindness and Sarah of this demonic situation. Uh, So that's a story of Raphael. Now in it, we see a couple of things and you can kind of make a little bit of a connection with one of the elements. Uh, So you can see where this association drives. First off, the angel, which his name is Healing of God, comes down and heals. And the way that he heals is with this secret knowledge of understanding the um, that demons can be cast aside using certain burnt materials and that eyesight can be restored by using certain materials. And uh, so you can kind of see this healing and knowledge and secret wisdom and these types of things. And we'll expand on that in a little bit. Before we expand on that, let's go look at Michael. Michael, um is the English pronunciation um, in and if you'd like to hear it, um, there's a really great pronunciation in that recording that I talked about. It's pronounced Michael. The ch sound in Michael is the is one of the noises uh, in Hebrew that is not in English, and it's very uncomfortable to make your throat do this at first, and then eventually it, it gets pretty comfortable. Um, it's like a noise. <laughs> uh, it's almost like a gag. Uh, But you, it becomes natural eventually, and then you no longer feel uncomfortable saying it. Uh, So if you'd like to, you can say, Michael, there's no one stopping you from doing that. It works just fine. Um, I have really gotten a lot out of uh, the more proper pronunciations, less because I think the pronunciations are powerful and more because I think understanding the pronunciation helps you to understand the way these names break down into, into Hebrew. So, uh, since I'm explaining that anyway, you might you might just be better off seeing Michael. I don't know. Experiment with it. Tell me what you find. Um, pronounced Michael or Michael, depending, and it literally translates to he who is like God. So it stems from the words me, which is who, ka, which is like, and el, which is God. So he who is like God. Um, he is the only archangel identified as such in the Bible. As we already quoted. Uh, that was Jude 1 9. He is also the one that fights the devil in Revelations. He directly fights the devil one on one in the book of Revelations uh, during the apocalypse. Um, in Islam, he's known as Mikhail or Mikal. And uh, <coughs> he shows up in the Quran. He shows up in uh, Quran chapter 2, verse 98. And out of every archangel, I would almost argue out of every, out of every character, most definitely out of every archangel. Probably, could make the same statement. Most definitely, out of every uh, angel, has the most canon material. He might have the most canon material outside of Jesus Christ, God the Father, and Lucifer outside of just the major key players, he's probably the next one with the most canon material. Um, most definitely the, the angel with the most canon material. But um, So there's a lot of information that can be uh, found for Michael. Um, there's several versions of Christianity which attribute Michael to being the angelic name of Jesus Christ. Uh, so the idea that Christ is actually the one in the book of Revelations fighting the devil directly, but that when Christ is in heaven, his name is Michael, that he has like an angel name and then an earth name. Um, this this concept of the angel names and earth names also applies to Mormonism. Uh, and in Mormonism, they attribute Michael to being Adam. So a really similar concept of like, you know, it being an earthly name and an angelic name or a spiritual name Um Michael is sometimes identified in ver- some versions of Christianity with Jesus, others with Adam, uh, some just as a, its own angel. Some some branches of thought, um, the angels don't overlap at all. So, with human beings. All right. Uh, next angel is Gabriel, pronounced Gavriel with a V. Uh, the letter B and the letter V. We talked about this in the Hebrew Kabbalah. Uh, I know I talked about this. I've ranted about it, I know. I've ranted about the connection between the letter B and the letter V so much to my wife. Um... (laughs) (laughs) one of the requirements for having a healthy relationship with me is is to accept that i might sometimes go on a 30 minute rant about the connection between the letter b and the letter v through various languages throughout history as you're just trying to uh you know cook dinner or go to bed <laughs> and uh i love her to death she she uh she loves and appreciates that side of me and will actually hear me out <laughs> But knowing that I have that rant, I am almost positive that that rant has made its way into specifically one of the episodes. If I were to remember, it is the one that we were breaking down the Sefer Yetzirah and the um, origins of the Kabbalistic Tree of Life. Um, There's a strong connection, especially in the Hebrew, but also in other other languages that connects the letter B and the letter V. In this case, uh, Gabriel is written without a dog... Is it with a dog ash or without a dog ash? There's a... It's pronounced with a V in Hebrew. I won't break it down. I won't go back on the rant. You almost got me, guys. It was really close. You almost got an extra half hour of content that you've probably already listened to. <laughs> All right. Um Gabriel means mighty, which is of God, or the mighty one of God. It stems from the words gabar, which is very similar in both tone and meaning and the sound, pronunciation-wise, uh, with the word "gabura" or "gabur." It's right down that same road of thought. It means might, "gabar," um, and "el," meaning of God. So, "gabarel," you can hear it. Uh, so, it's "gavriel" is the uh, the mighty one of God or mighty who is of God, the might of God. A lot of different ways to interpret that. Um, this is the angel that announces uh, the Virgin Mary's pregnancy, as well as Elizabeth's pregnancy in Luke 1, 1 through 25. And he also is the angel who appears to Muhammad and reveals the chapters 96, uh, which is the embryo in the Quran. Uh, this is a very interesting and important Chapter in comparison to a lot of the other chapters in the Quran, uh, in that it is believed to be and taught to be the very first lines delivered to Muhammad. Uh, So Gabriel comes down, delivers lines one through five of chapter 96, um, and then is later instructed to put it later in the book as other chapters are presented to write them in a specific order. So these are the first words spoken to Muhammad. Regarding the creation of the Quran. And it says. Uh, so I'm, I'm going to read an English translation of it. Uh, these are the lines spoken by Gabriel to Muhammad. Read, O prophet, in the name of your Lord who created created humans from a clinging clot. Read. And your Lord is most gener- is the most generous who taught by the pen, taught humanity what they knew not. Um, so Gabriel, very, very important character in both Christianity being the one who announces the Virgin Mary's pregnancy. Hey, guys, Jesus Christ is coming and he's inside this virgin here. Uh, And also uh, Islam being the one who is like, hey, here is the creation of the Quran. Very interesting archangel. um, Takes a lot of... um, You know what? I don't have this in my notes. It just occurred to me as I was recording. Um, If I remember correctly... So this one's got a question mark on it. Uh, I, ha- I was raised in a Mormon household when I was a child. And uh, if I remember the Mormon teaching correctly, Gabriel is also the angel who announces to the shepherds um, that the birth of Jesus Christ is coming. If I remember correctly, I could be wrong on that one. Um, somebody might benefit by looking at that information though. So might as well make sure it's in the podcast. Uh, the last archangel is listed in Lesser Banishing Ritual, the pentagram is Uriel. Um, sometimes it's spelled A-U-R-I-E-L and it's pronounced Uriel. Uh, a lot of times people will pronounce this Oriel or Ariel. And sometimes it's even spelled a little bit differently in order to get to that pronunciation. I have seen it where it's spelled with an A instead of an A-U. I've seen it spelled with just a U. We're often talking about the same angel. There are also a plethora of angels that have the same names happens all the time. Uh, We're like two angels. Like I've met dudes named Nate, you know, <laughs> that are not me. Uh, apparently that's an issue that they have in the uh, angel community as well. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> so it can get confusing which angel you're talking about sometimes, uh, especially when it comes to Uriel. Uh, but usually, uh, usually Uriel Uriel is spelled A-U-R-I-E-L or U-R-I-E-L pronounced Uriel and it means shining light of God stems from the words Ur uh, and El Uriel you can hear both of those words in there Uh, it means keeper of beauty and light well it means shining light of God and the archangel is considered to be the keeper of beauty and light uh, most of the references of Uriel are in the Book of Enoch as one of the seven archangels that are listed in the Book of Enoch. Um, Uriel is also the angel who warns Noah of the flood in 1st Enoch ten through 1-4. Uh, through 4. Um, It's hard to talk about the Book of Enoch without explaining at least a little bit about it. The book is quoted in some 1st and 2nd centu- uh, century authors and cited in the New Testament. Uh, In Jude 1, 14 through 15, it gets cited in the New Testament. Uh, However, the book of Enoch was not in the Bible uh, after a certain period, and uh, is one of the books that was uh, removed from the list, um, where a lot of people referenced it when they were living in a time period where it was canonically part of the Bible, and then later it was not canonically part of the Bible. Uh, the book was removed. Um, the Dead Sea Scrolls, however, did contain sections of Enoch 1. And uh, as I understand, the entirety of Enoch, uh, the Book of Enoch has been uh, recovered in the Nag Hammadi um, finding, the the books of the Nag Hammadi, which is similar to the find of the Dead Sea Scrolls. And um, it is a book that is in the list of 60. There was a 7th century list of books that were canonically in the Bible. It is not the current list of the canonical books. So if you go and you buy, like, I don't know, New Translation or King James Version or whatever, you go buy a, a, a Bible from, I mean, fuck, you can find it at the dollar store. You see, so you, you go find a Bible. You're not going to see it in there. It's one of the Apocryphi, right? It's one of the books that was removed, lost, and then recovered. Um, but in the 7th century, they wrote down a list of what they called the list of 60, which is the 60 books which are canonically in there, and it is in the list. So there's a whole bunch of questions as to why the Book of Enoch was taken out in the first place. Um, It's a fascinating read for ceremonial magicians, because in the book, it describes the motivation for the flood in greater detail. Uh, And describes God's motivation for the flood being directly tied into the creation of a part human part angel hybrid, um, like a, like a race of hybrids called the Nephilim, which are like magical giants that roam the earth uh, having been the child of an angel and a human. Um, it also uh, tales um, magic being one of the reasons for the flood. So simply put, the uh, rogue angels that were breeding with humans were teaching their offspring and the other humans um, magic, and uh, this was disrupting the plan. So um, as far as why it was removed from Catholic canon, uh, I have my own interpretation of that. I do think that the Catholic Church was trying to dissuade the population away from uh, magic in general, um, whether that be via superstition or, um, via, you know, their own scripture. And so I think that a lot of that was probably what had led them to make those choices of removing it. I do also think that it's a very important part of the Bible because it adds a lot of context to, uh, what's happening in the flood. You know, like there's, it's, it's one of the many books, um, the, the flood story in particular is one of the many stories that, um, people go, wow! This God guy is a psychopath. Just because people didn't do what he wanted, he murdered everyone. And uh, this adds context to that story of being like, well, we had this rogue group of angels that became the second group of fallen angels and joined, you know, the the resistance uh, against God, and and um, they were basically teaching the spiritual equivalent of weapons of mass destruction to a peoples that weren't ready to be wielding that kind of a thing. The whole plan was going to go to shit if we didn't do something and we, uh, you know, made a decision to to wipe out everybody that other than Noah and, uh, and his family. Um, whether that makes the story better or not, I, I mean, you could make an argument either direction. Uh, but I think it adds important context to the story as to what's evolving here, and um, removing that removes very key parts from the mythology um, that makes the story harder to understand. So um, I I really think that it's worth reading, especially if you're interested in ceremonial magic, to kind of get some of that context in there. Um, But yeah, Uriel, directly named several times within the Book of Enoch, and uh, is the angel who warns noah directly that the flood is going to happen um okay so those are the four archangels let's take a look at how the golden dawn treats the archangels the golden dawn treats the archangels as elemental in nature basically like elemental rulers patron spirits of the elements and even other forces depending on which uh angel you're bringing into the situation and they're robed uh in the most uh extreme version of whatever that elemental color is so um, the one that's associated with fire would be wearing, you know, robes that are like a bright, bright red, the most red red you can possibly find. Um, they would be holding the elemental symbol of um, of whatever that element is. So, in the case, again, with fire, they might be holding, you know, the fire wand of the Golden Dawn's work. Um, and they act kind of as rulers of the elemental spirits that are uh, fire spirits. Um, and this is true with all the different elements and all the different angels um, that are used in this ritual so uh, in the case of Raphael, Raphael is associated with air uh, robed in a bright yellow uh, with either the queen scale or the complementary color as accents on the robe Um, so for example um, a a yellow robe with trims and decorations that are sewn into it uh, in like a, a vibrant purple Uh, Carrying the elemental weapon, Raphael would wield uh, a dagger, which is representative of the suit of air, and would be ruler over the air elementals, which are the sylphs. Um, Michael, being associated with the fire, would be kind of what we just described a little bit ago as we were describing what these elemental depictions look like. So he would be robed in red with either the queen scale or the complementary color as accents. Um... So, like, uh, the trimming on his robes might be in a vibrant green. Um, Carrying a wand as the suit of fire and being the ruler of the fire elementals known as the salamanders. Salamanders is an interesting pick. I think I've talked about it in the episode of The Elements. Um, Salamanders in, in alchemical and medieval culture were believed to actually be like little baby dragons that were cooling themselves off in the river. They did, they, um, these things were like bright orange and vibrant colors. And like, they thought, man, these things have to live in volcanoes. And clearly it's getting too hot in the volcano today. And so it's cooling itself off in the river. And that's why I caught it in the river. Um, so when we talk about salamanders in magic, we're, we're talking about fire elementals who bear the name salamander being named after this. Um, association with salamanders and their bright coloring, their bright coloration, that is often volcano colored. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Uh, Gabriel, being uh, associated with water, is robed in blue with the colors accented in bright orange and uh, carrying a cup as the suit of water, ruler of the water elementals, which are known as the Undines. And finally, Uriel, who is uh, associated in this with the earth, um, uh, robed in the Sphere of Malkuth, um, which is a set of four colors. Um, I'm not going to go super in-depth into them, into the reasons, because I, I believe it's in other episodes, and if not, it'll probably come up again. Uh, basically, there are four colors associated with the Sphere of Malkuth, as opposed to one color, similar to how we might have like red for fire or water, uh, blue for water. Um, this In this case, it is citrine, olive, black, and russet. And it has to do with kind of the balance of color theory uh, where all four elements are present in the earth element. And so if you mix uh, red, blue, and yellow in different varying amounts, if you do it with a lot of red, then you get um, russet. If you do it with a lot of blue, then you get olive. If you do it with a lot of yellow then you get citrine and then the last color black is supposed to be like um the earth of the earth element it's supposed to be like the densest of all of the different colors and so all four are present on Uriel's uh robe carrying a disc or pentacle as the suit of air or i'm sorry as a suit of earth and uh ruler of the earth elementals which are known as the gnomes um yeah, similar to kind of how the, the salamanders were um, taken from and expanded on into elementals. Uh, the gnomes, uh, belief of gnomes, was that they were earth elementals. Um, so why those particular angels on those particular corners? Well, it has to do with the elemental association of those particular Um, things. So we already talked about why each element is on each corner. What we're doing now is we're just saying, well, Raphael is associated with air because of the intellect and because of the secret knowledge and because of the healing principles of the air element. Uh, Medicine and those types of things um, associates well with his story. Michael being fire, fire being uh, well, Michael meaning literally that which is like God and the fire element being a really, really close overlap with the spirit element being the, the bright glowy substance that gives off heat and is very similar to the, the fire of the sun and the fire of God's light and those types of things. So being, uh, and, and, you know, some of his, uh, some of his canon material, uh, show him as uh, wielding certain fire type items. Um, Gabriel being associated with water and Uriel being associated with air, I don't think that they are quite as cut and dry, uh, but I, I, I don't think that they're without um, some justification as well. You know, Gabriel announces um, the the birth of the child. Birth of the child is announced by what? You know, like in, in a regular mundane pregnancy, what announces that it is time for the child to come? The water breaking you know, like the, the, suddenly there is this flush of water that enters the space because the womb is ready to, uh, and the child is ready to arrive, right? Um, so Gabriel being the announcer of the pregnancy and the announcer of the birth and being associated with the water element is not necessarily a really, a really far leap to make. Um, as far as Uriel, I would say that Uriel is kind of the the hardest one to make the jump for, meaning shining light of God and then being Earth element, uh, can be a little bit of a, a, a more of a stretch. But if you've only got four and you're associating with the elements, and that's the one that is left over, I can I can see where that you know fits you into that slot. Um, I I do also think there is something to um, some of the um, the Earth element uh, concepts in some of the stories that uh, Uriel, uh the role that real takes within the Book of Enoch. So there's a lot of information there, but the reason why we associate those particular angels to those particular quarters is because we've already assigned the elements to those quarters, and we would put Raphael in the air corner, and now suddenly he's going to be in the east. It's those types of things. Uh, and so it kind of goes back to that defining of the space. Before me Raphael, behind me Gabriel, and my right hand Michael, in my left hand Uriel. It goes into that already defined space of which thing is on which direction. So that's the calling of the archangels, and immediately after that, it goes into the proclamation, which is these two lines. Uh, there's different versions of them. Depends on if we're looking at Crowley's version or Regardi's version. Um, in Liber O, Crowley says that these two lines are for about me flames the pentagrams and in the column stands the six-rayed star. And um, in the middle pillar, Regardi writes, for before me flames the pentagram, and behind me shines the six-rayed star. In Tree of Life, Regardi changes the script uh, and writes, for about me flames the pentagram, and in this column shines the six-rayed star. So, Uh, depending on which version of uh, Regarde's script you're looking at, you'll either see one that aligns better with Crowley's or one that does not. Um, In it, it depicts two different stars that are being used, the pentagrams, which you have drawn around you, and this six-pointed star, which has just appeared in the space, you're not the one that drew it. And I think that that is a really good time to bring up Bashem Hashem again, because that six-rayed star, that six-pointed star, something you might consider like... um, Like they they call it the Jewish star or the Merkaba or it's that uh, the two triangles, one descending triangle, one uh, up pointing triangle uh, sitting on top of each other. Um, You've seen it before. Um, That entering the space without being drawn by the magician is actually part of the symbol. And I know I've harped a lot on how sometimes people will Uh, not dive as deep into the material and then change the ritual in order to um, fit their lack of information. Um, Not knowing that the proclamation of the angels to the different quarters comes from Bashem HaShem means you end up missing this detail that I think is really important of the space being filled with this divine light, not of the magician's origin, none of the magician's creation. You draw the pentagrams, you draw the circle, you speak certain words, you create this sacred space, and once the sacred space has been balanced and created via that, a new thing enters that space which you have prepared for it. And in Bashem Hashem, what it says is, Michael be at my right hand, Gabriel at my left hand, Uriel before me, Raphael behind me, and then this last line, and above my head, uh, my head, the presence of God, and that six-pointed star. Often, especially in ceremonial magic, will take this um, this macrocosmic um, energy station. It will it will take the position of um, cosmic energies um, entering a space. Now we'll use it in the uh, banishing and. Uh, invocations of the hexagram um, to work with forces which are greater than ourselves, like the uh, horoscopes, the um, the planets, those types of things. Uh, but in the case of LBRP, I think uh, it's safe to say that what is happening here is you have created a sacred space and God enters that space. Um, that symbol itself, the two triangles, it um, it shows up quite a bit in, in a lot of different systems. Um, the Mug and David, the, which is the shield of David, is the, the Jewish symbol that you've seen um, depicted in their systems. Uh, the Hermetics use it as a unit, uh, a union of opposites. Uh, it is, you know, an up-pointed triangle and a down-pointed triangle, kind of saying the, uh, the union of that which is above and that which is below. It's pointing, like literally pointing. And it's the union of those two things. So it's, it's uh, kind of a symbol of the phrase, as above, so below. Uh, and it's that symbol of God and that symbol of cosmic forces, which are above the individual. Um, as far as the hexagram goes, it's dealing with more macrocosmic forces like the planets, whereas the microcosm, the pentagram is dealing with more like earth, air, fire, water, spirit. It's also dealing with you know the internal forces within man and those types of things. Uh, Rigardi, or I'm sorry, it's Crowley. Crowley, in he's got a, a, a section of notes called the, the Notes on the Lesser Ritual of the Pentagram, where he kind of expands on this, uh, where he says, he's talking about the Lesser Ritual of the Pentagram and, and, and this process of this proclamation point um, where you are declaring that you are in the center of the universe. You know, you're declaring this this balance point. Uh, which is why I call it the Proclamation. I also call it the Proclamation because this is the point within the ritual that stuff happens. And we'll expand on that in a little bit. Uh, where, like, you do stuff. Um, once this space has been created, you do stuff with the space if you're if you're seeking an effect. Um, but um, in these notes called Notes of the Lesser Ritual of Pentagram, if you'd like to read them, they are printed in... Let me look at my library. Uh, Magic Book 4... Um Libra Ava Magic Book 4 um, has them uh, tacked onto the end in most of the more um, in the version that I have. I believe mine's the sixth or seventh edition. Uh, it is one of the included materials, or you could find it online, of course. In these notes, he says, "You are thus standing is, or, you are thus standing in a column which is protected by your microcosmic invocation. The consequent result being macrocosmic response is that without any effort on your part, the hexagram or sixfold star appears both above you and below you. In this way, you are completely shut off from the outer and cliffotic parts of the universe. Uh, cliffotic being the, the, uh, the uh the anti-tree of life. <laughs> it's uh, the tree of life mirrored. It's the, the opposites. For example, instead of kether, it has uh, duality. Um, so instead of union, it's duality. Those types of things where it's kind of like flipped on itself. It's the the uh, in the old myth it was um, the shells which protected the the cores of the um, the uh, tree and the sephiroth uh, had fallen off and made its own tree, um, but they were like illusionary lesser forces. Um so he's saying, um, uh, you know, you protect yourself and clear this space and declare this microcosmic invocation, and as a result of that, there is a response from the macrocosm and this hexagram without you doing it, uh, appears above you and below you. Now, um I have seen a lot of times where someone uh rewrites this ritual, doesn't understand, they're like well, I'm not being protected from all sides. You are being protected from all sides. That's why this thing has entered the space. Why I didn't draw it? Yeah, that's part of the intention. And it goes back to that Bashem HaShem concept of, um, and above my head, the presence of God. You know, this, this. Um, so as Crowley writes it, in this column shines a six-rayed star. Um, as Regardi writes it, he, um, he uses both symbols, I think that the, Part of it's probably he was taught one way and then found a better way later and published the better way. Um, But um, so for him, it it is before you is a new pentagram and behind you is the six rayed star. Crowley's is that above and below, which creates a column because now you have a circle that's around you that you've drawn and it creates this column and above you and below you is this thing, which kind of creates like this little box around you because in front of you and to your left and right and behind you are the pentagrams and above you and below you are the hexagrams. And here you are standing on Malkuth, um, you know, in the universe. Um, that particular writing is, uh, the Notes on the Lesser Ritual of the Pentagram by Crowley. It goes into some other stuff as well. I think it's really valuable. It talks about, um, you know, um, you and, um, which is uh, the ballistic tree of life. It talks about, um, the intersection of is it pay and i think it's pay and i don't remember off the top of my head a couple of other places with on the uh, on the tree um oh here it is it's in my notes it's the intersection of pay and samek i was gonna say samek but i didn't want to sound wrong that's funny so um Another thing that's really interesting looking at the tree, and this is a little bit hard to do on a podcast to kind of describe this, but if you are at the intersection of those two paths on the Kabbalistic Tree of Life, which Crowley is claiming in that set of notes that that's where doing the Lesser Banishing Ritual of the Pentagram puts you, um, is that uh, now there you are standing at the very, very bottom of a hexagon on the tree where daath is at the very top, Gabura and Hesed are in the next two uh, points on the star. Uh, Hod and Netzah are the uh, bottom two points on the star, and then Yesod below you as you um, have elevated to that standpoint. Um, kind of puts you right, right there on the tree, um, which that idea gets expanded on a little bit more as we investigate the Lesser Ritual, the Hexagram, um, with the the Hexagram being positioned there on the Kabbalistic Tree of Life. Um, opens up a lot of really interesting information. Um, And then the last thing, uh, I kind of alluded to it a little bit uh, a couple of minutes ago, Um, but at this point in the proclamation, all of the things are in order. Everything is, you know, um, the things are all balanced and in order. And so now you can kind of do what you're going to do with them. And so if you're going to use this space in order to invoke some kind of thing, now that you've proclaimed yourself in this uh, perfectly balanced section of the universe, the center of the universe, um, now you can uh, tweak stuff. So if you were going to do some rite that calls some specific entity, or maybe you're doing some particular working, like this is the section where you would do that, um, whatever you're going to do with this space. So let's say that you're doing, I don't know, like an invocation of fire or whatever, and you decide that you're going to draw a pentagram in the very center of the circle in order to bring uh, that into the space, this is the point that you would do those types of modifications of the ritual. So that puts us, having done the Calling of New Archangels and the Proclamation, which now brings us to the last bit of the script where you close out. And you close out in the same way that you opened up. You close out with... The Kabbalistic cross, Ate, Malkuth, Vigabura, Vigadula, Leolam, Amen. And um, which is, uh, again, it says, unto thee the kingdom, uh, the power and the glory forever, Amen. And uh, this is a really important point to, to point out. Uh, the chiastic structure that uh, the ritual is actually written in. So chiastic structure is a a literary device that gets used a lot in poetry, gets used a lot in scripture, especially Abrahamic scripture. And basically, as simply put as possible, um, a lot of scripture is written where the last verse of this particular set of scripture is the same as the first verse in like tone and concept and meaning. And then the second one is the same as the second to last one. And it kind of like creates almost like a triangle where you have your, your, your first item and your last item, they're the same. Your second item and your second to last item, they're the same. And so if you have an odd number, then it draws attention to whatever's in the middle. And there's really, really long versions of this found all throughout mythology, scripture, and, and uh, literary narrative. Um, it's really commonly seen in the Quran and the Bible and in the Torah, but you can also find examples of chiastic structure in the Iliad, the Odyssey, Book of Mormon, the Beowulf story, and a lot of poetry. Um, so, uh, I'm gonna kind of read through a really long one. I'm a little hesitant because usually I have a slide that uh, here would show you what I'm gonna say, so it's a lot more it's it's more visually appealing and a little bit easier to understand the information. Um so I'm going to read through the whole list and then I'm going to point out just the center of that which makes it a little easier to understand what I'm talking about. So in the Genesis narrative uh in the Genesis flood narrative uh which is Genesis 6:10 through 9:18 or 9:19 um the chiastic structure is really 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 obvious. And basically what happens is the very first verse talks about Noah and his sons. And the very last verse talks about Noah and his sons. The second to last verse talks about all life on Earth, and the second or the the second verse and the second to last verse talks about all life on Earth. The third and the third to last talks about a curse being on Earth or a blessing being on Earth. The fourth and fourth to last talk about the announcement of the flood, and then the announcement that there will no longer be floods. Um, The fifth. And 5th to last talks about the Ark, its design, and what's going on with it. The 6th and 6th to last talks about all living creatures on Earth. The 7th and 7th to last talks about the food that they have. And, you know, in one they're stockpiling it, and the other they're like, hey, I'm glad we have this. (laughs) Um, And I I lost track, I think I'm on 6th, so 7th. It talks about uh, animals uh, being in man's hands. And then the uh, other verse talks, the second verse talks about um, the animals again, but it's more like them being released. And then um, the seventh and seventh to last talks about them entering and exiting the ark. And then this is where it's going to create that triangle that I'm talking about. Um, The eighth and eighth to last talks about the water increasing and decreasing. And then the very, very most central point of the story is always placed in the middle of this mirror effect as they write in chiastic Structure. And what it does is it draws the attention to the odd thing out that doesn't have a mirrored reflection. right? So uh, this particular verse in the Genesis flood is God remembering that Noah is good. And so kind of what's happening is the story starts off and then it gets to the point, and then it reverses and goes backwards as a conclusion of the story. So it says, Noah and all his sons and all life on earth, and then we're going to curse the earth, and there's this announcement of the flood, because uh, you know the earth is going to be destroyed, so you'll build an ark, all living creatures will be on the ark, here's all the food that you're going to have, all the animals will be in man's hands, everybody get on the ark, now the water's coming up, and now the point of the story is that God remembers those who are good, and, and thus does not destroy everyone on earth because God remembers that Noah is good. And that's the moral in the Genesis flood narrative is that God won't destroy you if you're good, even if the entire earth is evil, right? Because God remembers that Noah is okay. And then in order to draw to attention that that is the point, they start doing the same thing in reverse. Now the waters decrease instead of increase. Now they exit the ark. Then it talks about the animals. Then it talks about the food. Then it talks about all living creatures on Earth and the ark. Then no food in the uh, no floods being announced. Uh, and then instead of a curse on Earth, now it's the blessings that are given to Earth, and then all life on Earth and then Noah and his sons. So it creates that that driving point towards the central concept of how something works. And one thing that I think is really interesting is this chiasic structure is something that a lot of people who are um, well acquainted with scripture analysis are going to be familiar with this chiastic structure and how to find it in other places and the lesser banishing ritual of the pentagram is written in chiastic structure it opens with the cabalistic cross and it ends with the cabalistic cross the next section and the second to last section is the pentagrams and the drawing of the circle and the the central point of power in the ritual, is calling in these archangels as stabilizing and clearing influences to accomplish the working, right? And so uh, it opens with the cabalistic cross, then it goes into the pentagrams and circle, and then the central point being this stabilizing influence. And then the proclamation is this declaration of about me flame the pentagrams and in this column, the six raised star, which is reaffirming the pentagrams and the circle. And then it closes out where it began. That is Triassic structure. So I think that it's a really, really interesting um, route to delve both into ceremonial magic, the work of the Golden Dawn, the work of Crowley, uh, and a lot of those types of things. Um, okay. So let's all take a minute and appreciate that we have officially made it through. I don't know, uh, hours of the Lesser Banishing Ritual of the Pentagram. That is the whole script. We have made it through the entirety of the script. Now, I want to take a second. Let's expand a little bit and talk about some variations. You can do modifications and theme modifications and um, utilizing the ritual for different things. And I want to at least briefly talk about how you might go about doing those kind of things. Now, usually, if you're doing... Like uh, element-specific work, you're probably going to use the greater ritual of the pentagram, which is just lesser ritual of the pentagram with some extra stuff tacked on. Um, and a couple of words switched around. and um, But it, it has some of the, the core structure is, is the same. Um, so like, for example, let's say we were going to use the ritual of the pentagram and we were going to use it instead of doing all four elements and a balancing, let's say we're gonna invoke one particular element. In this case, let's say we're invoking fire, right? Well, the first thing that we would do is we'd put the fire element on all four sides. Um, And uh, again, this is gonna apply a lot more to greater uh, pentagram rituals than lesser, but you could use lesser to this effect if if you so desired. It it does operate, I've, I've done it before. Um, so you would put fire on each side and then you would turn your body towards the fire element direction of, um, in this case, South, right? If we're using fire as the example, it would be South. And so instead of doing the ritual to the East, you would do it to the South because you do it to that elemental quarter. And then instead of drawing the pentagram of earth on all sides, you would draw the pentagram of fire on all sides or pentagram of water or earth or whatever it was that you're trying to interact with you would do the different pentagram now uh as far as the calls you could feasibly do either and this is why i say most of the time you're going to be doing this with the greater ritual as opposed to the lesser ritual is because when you start doing the god names you could do the lesser banishing ritual of pentagram god names which form a sentence and create that protective circle and And, uh, you know, um, I would do all four of them, not just one of them at each corner. However, the Greater Ritual of the Pentagram is not laid out like that. The Greater Ritual of the Pentagram is laid out with the Kabbalistic elemental god name on those corners. And so if you were doing the Greater, you would do that particular call on all four corners. Um, The angels would stay in their quarters and you would um, you you would adjust what you're saying as far as who's on what side based on which direction you're facing. So let's say I'm facing south. Now, before me is Michael. Behind me is Uriel. At my right hand is Gavriel, and at my left hand is Raphael. Uh, Let's say I was doing a water element. Now, before me is Gavriel, behind me is uh, Raphael, at my right hand is Uriel, at my left hand is Michael, right? So you would adjust your speech as opposed to their positions. Um, And then you can go much, 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 much farther with Lesser Banishing Ritual of the Pentagram as far as modifying it for your needs. And I would make a really strong argument that um, even from the get-go, from the very first publication of uh Libre O by Alistair Crowley, um, he documents right there in there what you would do if you were gonna modify it for some other stuff. Maybe you wanna modify it to be, I don't know, maybe you're doing you're working with a different energy, and so you wanna adjust the colors and the candles and the, you know, like whatever uh, physical stuff is in the temple. Maybe you are working a lot with Egyptian themes and you want to change out the gods to uh, the god names to be Egyptian themed. You want to change out um, the angels to be Egyptian um, entities through myth or whatever. And not only does he say that this is stuff that you can do, he lists off a set of instructions on how to modify this to be oriented to different directions. Now, um that gives you quite a bit of playroom before you even have to actually like truly change lesser banishing ritual into its own new ritual. Because if the very first publication is like, hey, if you want to work with, I don't know, Greek stuff, and here's the instructions on how you do Greek stuff, uh, instead of doing Hebrew stuff, uh, have at it, then it's not really until we start changing the structure that is the underlying structure of the lesser ritual, the pentagram, where we start inventing new rituals because in the instructions it's telling you how to go about doing that. And I think that's a really important point to, to point out. Um, so in Libero, um, Crowley gives a very bold statement. I would say it's my, my least favorite bold statement that Crowley has ever made. <laughs> Um, he says the student must first obtain a thorough knowledge of book 777, especially of the columns printed elsewhere in this book. When these are committed to memory, he will begin to understand the nature of these correspondences. I do think that you should memorize all of these columns. It is an incredibly pra- valuable practice and will really, really uh, set you off to success using Kabbalistic magic in general. Um, but... He says the student must first obtain a thorough knowledge of this. And I think that it's impractical for someone to not even have done the Lesser Ritual of Pentagram before they've memorized thousands of words and which order they are supposed to be in and which table they are supposed to be in. And so that's why I think it's a pretty steep order, is that, you know, you could, you will get a lot out of memorizing just one column in 777. <laughs> Uh, but do I think that you have to memorize all of them before you even get started with the ritual of the pentagram? No, that's, that's too much, I think. Um, sounds like Crowley might disagree with me. That's okay. Um, so the quote uh, printed in the Equinox for Libro reads a little bit differently than the quote taken from book four. In book four, when they published Libra Valmanus, he says, especially the columns printed elsewhere in this book. And when he printed it originally in the Aquinox, he says, especially columns, and then list out a set of columns. And each column is a different thing. One of them is like colors. One of them is like uh, god forms, different incense, magical weapons, all sorts of stuff. Uh, and how they assign to the tree of life and to those energies that are on the tree of life. And he's suggesting that if you memorize all of these things, then you'll see this correspondence, the the nature of these correspondences, and then it it'll make sense how you'll take the Lesser Ritual of the Pentagram and you know the star uh, star ritual in general, and be able to uh, kind of modify your ceremonial magic to the theme that you need it to be in for that particular working, whether that's changing it to Egyptian, to Greek making it more thelemic, which is something that correlated with the Star Ritual several times. Um, those types of things, you know, that's... that's. So I'm going to list off the columns that he suggests memorizing, and, and that will help demonstrate how tall of an order this really is. <laughs> Figure every single one of these columns is conjoined with one theme. So it would be like, hey, you should know Incense is my alarm to do rush. Give me one moment. I'm going to uh, go do one of my ceremonial uh, rituals that I do daily. All right. I am back from Resh. Um, we'll do a Rush episode at some point talking about uh, what that particular thing is. But um, put very simply, there are several times throughout the day that I do a specific uh, ritual and uh, had to break really quick to make sure I'm keeping up on my work. All right. So, Uh, We are reading off the list that is printed in the Equinox of which columns you should memorize. Um, I'm just going to read off the numbers really, really fast, and you'll hear just how extensive this list of categories is. Uh, He suggests memorizing columns 1, 2, 3, 5, 6, 9, 11, 12, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 34, 35, 38, 39, 40, 41, 42, 45, 54, 55, 59, 60, 61, 63, 70, 75, 77, 78, 79, 80, 81, 83, 97, 99, 100, 101, 117, 118, 138, 139, 175, 176, 177, and 182. Now, every single one of those columns is made up of about 32 items, little over 32 items, uh, depending on which which, uh, category you're looking at, but usually... uh, Those columns are 22 to 32 items, depending, right? Uh, So that many categories would leave you having to memorize the position of, I don't know, over a thousand things. Um, It's a steep order, but it's a valuable uh, order. And I would definitely suggest people that as they are uh, wanting to delve deeper into this, take this seriously as a potential because as you start to memorize those columns, the, a lot of details come out of the woodworks and, uh, not just in el- the ritual of the pentagram, but in a lot of, uh, mythology, ceremonial magic, uh, initiatory rites, all sorts of stuff are going to jump out at you. And you're gonna be like, Oh, there's an intended symbol here. And it's very Kabbalistic in nature. And, uh, yeah. A great example of this that I can talk about would be the Gnostic Mass. You know, the Gnostic Mass has a whole bunch of stuff in it that's just the detail level is insane. And a lot of it could be, you know, expanded on and understood by some Kabbalistic memorization. So, all right. Then he um, expands in LibreO a little bit on how far you might take this. You know, he, he expands it into this whole system as opposed to just being like, hey, you would change out some words and some directions. No, he tells you how, what you might burn in the temple and, and what kind of clothes you might wear and what you might decorate your ritual space in and all sorts of stuff to turn this simple ritual into a, a very expanded thing. And uh, this is probably my favorite quote and I'm sure that I have read it before. Um, but it, this describes how to now take this knowledge of seven 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 and this ritual, of the pentagram, and now expand it into a more general, free-flowing ceremonial magic, where you can do what you can do an adaptation of this in order to get this effect, and an adaptation of that to get that effect, and you can mold things to your to your, your mold your workings to the nature that you intend. So, uh, it reads: uh, If we take an example, the use of the table will become clear. Let us suppose that you wish to obtain knowledge of some obscure science. In column XLV, which is, um, what is that, 185, I think. I think it's 185. Line 12, you will find knowledge of sciences. By now looking up line 12 in the other columns, you will find that the planet corresponding is Mercury. Its number is 8. Its lineal figure, the octagon an octogram, the god who rules that planet, Thoth, or in Hebrew symboli- symbolism, Tetragrammaton, Adonai, and Elohim, Zibayoth. Its archangel, Raphael, its choir of angels, Bene Elohim. Its intelligence, Tyrael, its spirit, Tathathorath, its or- colors, orange, for Mercury is the sphere of the sphere of Hode, the number eight. Uh, its other colors, yellow, purple, gray, and indigo, rayed with violet. Its magical weapon, the wand or caduceus, its perfumes, majestic and others, its sacred plant, vivian and others, its jewel, the opal or agate, its sacred animal, the snake, etc., etc. You would then prepare your place of working accordingly. In an orange circle, you would draw an eight pointed star of yellow, at whose points you would place eight lamps, the sigil of the spirit, which is to be found in Cornelius Agrippa and other books you would draw in the four colors with such other devices as your experience may suggest. The general purpose of all this preparation is as follows. Since the student is a man surrounded by material objects, if it be his wish to master one particular idea, he must make every material object about him directly suggest that idea. Thus, in the ritual quoted, if his glance falls upon the lights, their numbers suggest mercury. If he smells the perfumes, again, mercury is brought to his mind. In other words, the whole magical apparatus and ritual is a complex system of mnemonics. So he, he gives this really in-depth idea on how to expand the ritual into a whole temple space and why you might choose to do that and how you might modify the entire ritual to be done in a space and done in a way which aligns with Mercury, he, as his example. Okay, so which tables, I listed off a bunch of numbers, which tables did he suggest that you look at? And and let's. I'm just going to kind of list these off um, in no particular order. And that should give you a little bit of an idea what types of modifications could be made to either the ritual itself, if it's like a god name, or to the space that you're standing in or what kinds of things you have in your hand while you're doing it or any, any of the types of modifications that might be uh, imagined, right? So in the Kabbalistic, I'm going to break it down into Kabbalistic, and Elemental, and uh, Zodiacal. Those are the ones that I'm going to break it down into. So the Kabbalistic, he suggests the key scale, which is understanding the layout of the tree, Um the Hebrew names and numbers and letters, the English names, which are the translations of those Hebrew names, numbers and letters, so that you understand what those things mean, the God names in Isaiah, so you might trade out the God names for something else, heavens of Isaiah, the English are the heavens of Isaiah, so that you understand what those Hebrew words are, and that's a really, really big one. There's two really, really big ones that I think if you're gonna learn none of these tables, learn these two. English heavens of Isaiah and the Yetzeric uh, attribution those two are the ones that are going to give you a breakdown of which energy you're dealing with in that case It's kind of acts as like a, a key to the rest of the Kabbalistic tree so um, when I say something like mercury is associated with this part of the tree th- that's the tables those are the two tables that would tell you that that would give you like kind of a, a breakdown of that uh, or if I said, like, fire is associated with this part of the tree. And that would give you, you know, at least the ability to then go through the columns manually, if you didn't memorize them all, and try to see what types of things are there. So, uh, English, Heavens, and Asai, and uh attribution. Uh, he also mentions the Sword and the Serpent, um, the elements with their planetary rulers, uh, the Tree of Life, which is a column that is a fancy table that describes the paths, I would just say you need to be able to draw the tree from memory. Um, the general attribution of the tarot, every single one of the scales of color so that you know what color things should be, what color you should be wearing, what color you should draw things on the ground. If you've already used that one color as a predominant color, now what do you do the accents in? Those types of things, right? Um, Egyptian, Roman, and Greek gods so that you could uh, change the theme in any way which is appropriate to you, um, as you will. Um Animals, plants, and precious stones so that if you're going to have some item that, uh, I don't know, you're charging up or is uh, background to help you think of certain things, um, what do you fill the space with? Which animals, plants, and precious stones do you fill the space with? What magical weapons do you hold in your hand as you're doing things? Uh, Which perfumes do you burn? Um, Magical powers is a column that he lists uh, in there for memorization that kind of give you an idea of, okay, well, if you looked at the Yetziric attributions, um, you would understand that this planet is on this particular path, but what does that planet do? What types of workings might you do by invoking that? The magical powers list would give you, you know, a breakdown of like, oh, well, Mercury can be used for this thing, or Jupiter can be used for this thing. Um, The Hebrew letters themselves... Gets listed in here. I think it's really, really valuable. And we talked a lot about the Hebrew letters in the uh, Kabbalah episode. Um, Geometric values of Hebrew, basically breaking down the Hebrew alphabet into its numerical value um, and uh, doing interpretations that way. And then he also lists uh, the human body, which body part. So you can see how you could build entire magical rituals using this type of a system. As far as planetary tables, he also lists off some things that have to do specifically with planetary energies. He lists off the spirits of the planets, the Olympic planetary spirits, the metals which are associated with either the planets or the alchemical process that is, of course, planetary in its um, symbol, Um, attribution of the hexagram, so which which planet is on which point of the hexagram, so you know where to start when you're drawing and, and those types of things, um, the parts of the soul, uh, the archangels in Isaiah, the angels of Isaiah, the English names of the angels of Isaiah, the hells and the princes of the Klyphoth. So that if you wanted to um, engage with clyphotic energies, you have a method to do that using the same system. Um, as far as elemental tables that he listed in that list of way too many columns to memorize, he lists off uh, the table of the letters of the name Uh, and then it's um, Hashem, uh, the Tetragrammaton, or uh, Joshua. Um, We'll have to expand that Joshua concept a little bit later. (laughs) I can't get into it right now. Um, It is super, super interesting, and and, uh, that table. And he also, a lot of these tables also have like writings after them, where he will list the table for your quick reference, and then he'll write up, Hey, here's why this is important and check this out. And, um, I strongly suggest taking the time to read those. They're fantastic. Um, he also says, okay, so the elemental tables, letters of the name, the elements, archangels, of the quarters, rulers of the elements, angels of the elements, the four worlds concept, attributions of the pentagram, the tot was, which is, uh, incredibly important to understand. We've already talked about it in this episode or in the, in an earlier LBRP episode, um, so which tatwas are associated with which things, uh, the parts of the soul, and he also lists the demon kings. Again, if you're going to engage with clifonic forces, you can lose, use the lesser ritual of the pentagram in order to do that. Um, I don't suggest uh, doing things that uh, may lead to your harm, of course. But uh, all all actions done for genuine spiritual exploration are at your disposal. Um, okay, and then which zodiacal tables does he suggest memorizing? He suggests the zodiac themselves. There's a, there's a column for the zodiac and where they go. The planets uh, ruling the zodiac and then the planets exalted in the zodiac. And so if you were to have all of those tables memorized, you would have all of those categories memorized and be able to cross-reference, adapt the ritual on the fly, change it to what you need it to be. And you can see how that can be a very valuable. And um, for example, Crowley does this. He does this when he uh, writes the Star Ruby. He does this when he writes the uh, Liber Reguli. Or not Liber Reguli. Liber, yeah, isn't it? In Liber Reguli? yeah. When he writes the ritual Reguline, when he writes the star Ruby, uh, these are both star rituals that are using this system in order to take some of the basic core structure that is the ritual of the pentagram and now bring it into um, some other symbol set. So let's cross-reference the star Ruby ritual and the lesser ritual of the pentagram. So the star Ruby reads... Facing east in the center, draw deep, deep uh, thy breath, closing thy mouth tight with the right forefinger pressed against thy lower lip, then dashing the hand down with a great sweep, back and out, expelling forcibly thy breath, cry, Apopantos kagadaimenos." With the same forefinger, touch thy forehead and say, "Soi thy member and say, Ophale. Thy right shoulder and say, Iskoros. Thy left shoulder and say, Eucharistos. Then clasping thy hands, locking thy fingers, cry, which is the Kabbalistic cross. Ata Malkuth, figurula, vigabula, laam, amen. Right? And it's Greek and it's really, really similar in its meaning, and it's accomplishing similar goals within the ritual, right? Uh, then the ritual says. Advance the east, imagining strongly a pentagram right in thy forehead, drawing with the, uh, the hands to the eyes, fling it forward, making the sign of Hippocrates and roar, roar Therion, retire thine hands in the sign of Hippocrat. Uh, which is, uh, and then he, you go around uh, the list. You say Therion, and then Nuit, and then Babylon, and then Hadit. You've gone all the way around the circle and put a pentagram at each corner, which is the drawing of the pentagrams and the vibrations of the god names from the lesser ritual of the pentagram, now updated for a Thelemic context, right? Um, where instead of uh, doing the uh, Tetragrammaton, you do Therion. Um Instead of doing Adonai, you do Nuit. Instead of doing Ehe, you do Babylon. Instead of uh, doing Agla, you do Hadit. And so that's, you know, a really, really similar section. You're doing the same thing, using the same format. Then completing uh, Circle Wittershins, retire to the center, raise thy voice in the paen, and with these words, Eopan, 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 do the signs of Nox. This is an adaptation that gets added into Star Ruby that's not originally within the Lesser Ritual of the Pentagram, but you can see how it would fit right about there into the ritual, right? Uh, and then the next thing done is extending the arms in the form of the Tau. Well, the form of the Tau, the Tau is the letter that looks like a T. Uh, so that's your arms out in cross, which is the same as the extending the arms in the form of a cross. Uh, and then... You say in a low but clear voice, "You say pro me iungus apisomotelitarche epideixiasinoke separis terdiminos phlegae garperemo, o astron pente caente stellae o astron ex which is Greek for "Before me the youngest at uh, behind me the telotarche. at my right hand sinokes at my uh, left hand diminos, uh, about me is the star or about me flames the star of five, and in this column, the star of six, or above me, the star of six, I don't I'm a little rusty in my Greek. Um, so, of course, that is the section where you're saying before me, Raphael, behind me, Gabriel. Um, something else to note here is that here, the youngest, Teletarche, uh Daimonos, and the Epiris Terra. No, Epiris Terra is a direction, Telotarque. Epodexia, youngest Youngus, Um, Telotarche, and Daimonos. These are concepts that are taken from the Chaldean uh, oracles. Um, so, really similar concept to doing a before me, behind me, right hand and left hand, some type of benevolent force used to anchor the space. And then the ritual finishes out. Repeat the cabalistic Cross as above and uh, end as thou did begin. So you finish off with the Kabbalistic Cross similar to how you begun with the Kabbalistic Cross. I would make a really strong argument that the Star Ruby is its own ritual, but it is also still the lesser ritual of Pentagram because you have this opportunity within the script to modify it to your needs. Um... Same is true with a lot of star rituals. They might accomplish slightly different things based on which forces you are using to anchor the space. But the overall, star rituals, uh, they share a certain fundamental foundation work that is uniform amongst them. Often, not all the time, but very often. Uh, so you could see how um, you might... Write your own whole ritual using this system. And this is why it's really important to dive into the lesser banishing ritual of the pentagram, even if you're not Christian or Jewish or uh Islamic or, you know, uh I don't know, if you're not if you're if you're not in that vibe, you know, maybe you're more of a Thelemite. You wanna, you know, do some stuff with uh Therion and Babylon and stuff, you new know eating how to eat. That's okay. I still strongly suggest learning why it is done the way that it is so that you have a deeper and more workable relationship with the star ritual that you choose to do being the star ruby. Um, and I want to say that a lot of times I have heard it said that, uh, the star ruby is only for banishing and the is only for invocations. And I disagree with that statement, you know? Um, I think that it's pretty clear through the layout of the ritual that you could use it for either. That you could easily take the Star Ruby and do it in an, in an invoking form or doing it in a banishing form and make it your, your daily Star Ritual. Um, same with Reguli. I have spent six-month periods doing only invocations and banishings using the Star Ruby system and six-month periods using only invocations and banishings using the Reguli system and found them both to be effective. Now, Reguli has some extra stuff in it. And remember, we talked a little bit about, like, now that the space has been declared, you might, like, draw some type of an invoking star in the center of something in order to, you know, invoke into that space. Um, Reguli takes that next step. Um, So I would almost put it in the category of, like, I don't know, maybe doing, like, like a greater invocation as opposed to a lesser. Uh, but you can see the format of the star ritual in both of those rituals, and it's very blatantly in there. Okay, so you can use the LBRP for everything, Nate? Yeah. Kinda. But no. <laughs> when wouldn't you use the LBRP, right? Like that's the next question. The logical next question is like, well, if I can use if I can modify the lesser ritual of the pentagram to be all of these things, when would I use anything else? Like what why, only, why not just learn the one? Well, the LRP is specifically designed to be a pentagram ritual. It works great for elemental forces, microcosmic forces. It works great for internal things, uh, setting your own energy, your own aura into the right space. It works really good for that. To align things on the low level before doing, for example, the lesser ritual, the hexagram. Working with the macrocosm. The planetary energies, the horoscopes, the Sephiroth, and the microcosmic forces, right? My macrocosmic forces, but you got what I mean. Um, yeah. So, uh, if I was going to do the Lesser Ritual of Hexagram, I would do the Lesser Ritual of Pentagram first, and then I would do the Lesser Ritual of Hexagram. Um. Or I might use the format that is the Lesser Ritual the hex, uh, Pentagram in order to write my own Star Ruby ritual. You know, my own, like, which is something that I have done. You know, maybe not Star Ritual, but I've... There was a period where I did... Um, a lot of times I do six-month stretches. I'll do one specific set of rituals every single day for six months, document what happens, and investigate why, right? Um, and really try to dig in as much as possible into, like, all the symbols during that period so that I have a, a real connection with that energy. Kind of like throwing out a net and hoping that you catch some fish, right? Um, and uh, there was a period where I wrote, uh, I was working exclusively with Greek mythology for a period. I wrote, um, not to say the Star Ruby doesn't have a Greek version. I modified it slightly to be solely Greek instead of, have, instead of mostly Greek. Uh, found out to be effective. Um, but then anytime I was doing like hexagram oriented stuff, I would do the lesser ritual hexagram or pentagram first and then step into the hexagram. So you can see how it's valuable. I want to leave you guys with a Crowley quote talking specifically about the lesser ritual the pentagram. And this goes into that exact same um, set of notes that we talked about a minute ago, where we say the notes on the lesser ritual, the pentagram from Libra Abba. It's in the appendix. And uh, if, if you'd like to see this quote directly, uh, as well as the other stuff that we reference from that document, it's in appendix uh, five, six, seven, eight. It's appendix eight. Um, and the quote talks about why someone would do this. It says... Those who regard this ritual as a mere device to invoke or banish spirits are unworthy to possess it. Properly understood, it is the medicine of metals and the stone of the wise. And I want to leave you with that to think about, is that this foundational piece to ceremonial magic, according to Crowley, goes far and beyond invoking and banishing. And according to him is the medicine of metals and the stone of the wise. And for those who know what that reference is, I think that's a pretty powerful statement, especially coming from someone like Crowley, who had a lot of experience with a lot of things. Um, I, so I'll leave you there to, to think of the gravity of what that could be for you, if it be your will. Um, good luck. Thanks for listening to the Whitewood Podcast. This show is made possible by our Patreon members. You can find us on Twitter at Whitewood Show and on Facebook at Whitewood Podcast. For links to all our social media and information about our Patreon, visit us at whitewoodpodcast.com.